We return this morning to the Gospel of John. We've been in and out of it for some time now. We will be beginning today and making our way towards the cross and then beyond as we'll, if all things work as I have planned, we will be finished with the Gospel of John at the end of May. We're going to read in just a moment the text of John uh, John 18, verses 1 through 18. But before we get there, maybe you, you may be aware of this, you may have have some knowledge of this, but during the 1980s and the 90s, and then even up into, excuse me, the new millennium, many churches began to pursue church growth through a a model that became known as the seeker-sensitive movement. And this model sought to minimize things that could be seen as offensive in order to not turn people away or turn people off from from going to church. <clears throat> in theory, it sounded good and even produced growth in church attendance in some instances. Now, ideally, the goal of this model was to attract the interest of those who were seeking God in, in some way. The problem with this ideology is the method, methods required to focus on so-called seekers required that the church diminish the message of the gospel in some way or another. One fundamental flaw of this method of thinking or way of thinking is found in in the nature of the purpose of the church. You see, the church is not called to produce church growth. The Bible is clear that only God causes growth. The church and the individual believers, believers that make up the church are called to faithfully proclaim the message of the gospel, no matter what the outcome might be. That's what the church has been called to. Now, in in American thinking, as it's developed over the years, we have unfortunately come to view the church much like another corporation and and are easily swayed when it comes to the, the inherent difficulties that are involved in being faithful to the gospel. We often find ourselves... Understandably so, thinking in terms of survival rather than faithfulness. Another fundamental flaw with this seeker-sensitive way of thinking is that, according to the Bible, the only true seeker is God. Humans, as the Bible teaches us, are plagued with sinfulness, which drives all humanity, everyone born since the fall, to seek self-fulfillment. Rather than God's glory. And that's what the Bible means when it says in Romans chapter 3. There are none righteous. No, not one. No, none who understand. No one seeks God. Therefore, in order to attract sinful people to our churches. <clears throat> it would require that we bend ourselves to their felt needs. And their selfish desires. Or in other words, that we play to their weaknesses in order to gain their attention or to attract them to our gathering. And doing so in itself forces the church to compromise the very gospel that we're called to proclaim. We are instead to unapologetically yet graciously proclaim the self-denying gospel message 
through which means God has chosen to draw sinners to himself. And then we must allow, therefore, God to do what only God can do. Now, this is what we find throughout the pages of Scripture as we read from the beginning through the end. The gospel is proclaimed without compromise. And and we find in the scriptures that that God opens the eyes of sinners to the truth of the message that is proclaimed and, and then draws them to himself. And unfortunately, the difficulty for us is that not only is that part true, but when we do proclaim that message, the other side is true as well. And that is that there are some and in fact, many who will hear this message proclaimed and and they will find it repulsive. And then we find that often difficult to digest. Now, in our passage today, we will find those who we could characterize as seekers. Some of these seekers even imagined that what they were doing was the right thing. But in fact, we find that they were seeking out Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, in order to destroy the their understanding of the so-called movement that this person stood for. And in the end, despite their efforts, God was using their sinful actions to fulfill his ultimate plan to crush the head of the serpent and to provide salvation for many who would at some point trust in him. In reality, I guess you could say in, in some sort that all of humanity are in a sense seekers We spend our lives seeking to fulfill an emptiness within us that can only be filled through reconciliation with our creator. Only that isn't really what we want. We want what we want, but we want it on our own terms. We, like Adam and Eve, want to be our own lawmakers. Sure, we want what what God can offer us. But we don't want it on the only terms by which it can be obtained. We would gladly, I don't know anyone who who would not gladly say, absolutely, I want peace and and I want satisfaction and and I want fulfillment, which are the things that, that God promises to those who believe. But most or many want these things so long as it comes by way of our own design. Now, while those who who sought out Jesus in John 18 um, completely were missing the truth that that stood literally right in front of them, Jesus would, through their folly and their foolishness, fully satisfy the ultimate need of the world. As Peter declared it in Acts chapter 2, Jesus would be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and also be crucified and killed by the hands of God lawless men. John 18 begins the the narrative of Jesus' journey to the final and decisive victory over sin, death, and the grave. And the question that that Jesus posed to the mob in, in this particular passage should continually ring in our hearts when he asks the question, whom do you seek? Are we in pursuit of Jesus himself? As the image of the glory of God and the only one who is worthy of our worship? Or are we rather in pursuit of what he has to offer so long as we can obtain it on our own terms? 
Let's read together John 18, verses 1 through 18. When Jesus had spoken, spoken these words, he, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was happening to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. It, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the girl and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Our Father, as we... Turn our attention to your word this morning. It is our prayer that you would give us eyes beyond the physical. That you would allow us to to look into the wonders of your revelation recorded in the pages of scripture. And uh, to see you for all that you are as you seek to reveal yourself through the gospel. And Father, we pray this morning that uh, not only would we have eyes to see, but that you would give us ears to hear. That allow us not to be distracted by the many things that could distract our minds at this time. Uh, things that have gone on before we arrived here or things that are going on later. I pray, Lord, you would help us to now, for these few moments, to focus in and allow your word to reign supreme in our hearts and our lives. So, uh, Father, it is our prayer that we may hear. And then finally, Lord, it is our prayer this morning as we search your word that, that you would give us hearts that would, be, that would gladly embrace the truth that is contained therein. Uh, may we not hear and, and understand and stand in opposition to the word, nor uh, I pray that we would not hear and understand and, and, and walk away uh, indifferent, but rather, Lord, that we would be impacted and even convicted and, and challenged by this word as we focus our attention to the, uh, 
the time that leads to the greatest and most ultimate sacrifice of all times, uh, that of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So God, we pray you be glorified in these moments. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout this gospel, as we've worked our way or inched our way through it, John has been known, or we saw early on, that John often spoke of the hour. The hour that was to come uh, is where he began on many occasions. And, and then in his farewell discourse, which uh, are found in chapters 14 through 16, uh, John reveals uh, that not only the hour was to come, but the hour was now at hand. And it was for this reason that we saw in John chapter 17 that Jesus paused to pray for his disciples because they were about to face a time of great difficulty and a time of of great trials. Now, not to compare it to what Christ was about to face, but they themselves would undergo a great deal of trial in the midst of what Jesus was going to go through as he approached the cross. So now as we pick up in John 18, this begins the narrative of that hour uh, that Jesus has has been his goal uh, from the very beginning. It's from the time we enter into the Gospels, that's where Jesus' eyes have been set. And he's spoken of the hour that was to come and the hour that was at, at, at hand and now the hour that was very present. It was his goal. It was for this purpose that Jesus came. And despite the difficulty that, that lay before Jesus, uh, Jesus, whether we get it or not, was in absolute, complete control of all that was about to unfold. And we'll find that John takes careful measure to make sure we understand that very point. So as we consider these these 18 verses of John 18, I want us to, to draw our attention to five things, and they are these. Number one, I want us to see a return to the garden where the plight of sin began. Number two, Christ as the God-man in complete control of the circumstances. Number three, the significance of the cup that Christ says he must drink of. Number four, the nature of what we call the vicarious sacrifice, or in other terms, theological terms, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And then finally, the danger of identification with Christ. And first, we, we consider a return to the garden. John reports in chapter 18 that after Jesus had finished speaking these things, which is a common phrase that he uses as he moves along in this narrative, and he's likely referring to the the words of Jesus' prayer in 17, after he had finished speaking these things, it says that he and his disciples made their way across the, the Kedron Valley to a garden. Now, while that may pass before us and seem somewhat insignificant, the The location of Jesus' betrayal is more than a mere geographical reference for John. There are at least two significant purposes for him revealing this location to be a garden. The first of those reasons is very evident because it flows on in verse 2. And and John is very explicit about that reason. He clarifies there that this particular garden was a frequent, frequent gathering place... For Jesus and his disciples. And therefore, it was an obvious, out-of-the-way place of which Judas would have been very familiar with and in order for him to carry out his plot to betray his master. So, that's an obvious reason for which 
John points out this garden. Now, the second reason I believe that John points out this location to be a garden is easily overlooked merely because we do have at least one reason in verse 2. But John has been known throughout his gospel. It's one of the marks of John, as we see not only in the gospel, but even in the, the books he wrote or the letters he wrote to the church in First and Second and Third John. It is, it is typical of John to, to seek to utilize language that, that throughout the gospel serves to elude us or as an illusion to point back to significant Old Testament scripture, though he doesn't necessarily tell us so explicitly. To give you one example, which many people are very aware of, in the very beginning of the gospel, he begins by saying, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And he goes on in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. Now, at the very beginning, we recognize at the very least that John is seeking to allude. He's not quoting scripture necessarily, but he's alluding to, to scripture that he's reading in his Bible. He's alluding to Genesis chapter 1 where God created all things by his word. And so when, when John says in the beginning was the word, that in itself was an identification of this word that was made flesh to be God himself. Well, in like manner, the introduction of this unnamed garden serves as an illusion as well. And that illusion is to that of Genesis 2 and 3. Because it was in a garden where man first betrayed God and sought to live in independence from him. It was there that we discover the fall of mankind taking place and the beginning not only of man's plight, but of God's gracious pursuit of sinners who were rebels opposed to his rule and opposed to his provision for them. And since that time, we are very aware that every human being has been born with a heart in rebellion against God. Not only is mankind not seeking God, but we all are born with a heart in such opposition that we are turned and running away from God. Yet God in his infinite wisdom and mercy and grace has patiently and faithfully pursued us in order to provide us with the ultimate satisfaction and ultimate salvation for his glory. Now, there is a hint of irony found in this particular location of the garden. It was in the garden that Adam, who lived in sinless perfection and perfect creation, it was in that situation that he turned his back on God and he plummeted all of mankind into an existence of sinful depravity. And now, Jesus Christ, whom the New Testament later refers to as the second Adam finds himself in a very similar circumstance. And so the question at this moment, if we didn't know the end of the story, would be, will he run? Will he too seek to hide? Will he decide, as Adam did, that there was a better way than God's way? Or would he, in perfect obedience... And in perfect trust of God the Father, submit himself completely to the will and to the glory of God. Now, as Jesus, as Jesus revealed throughout his life, it's unfolded throughout the Gospels, we find that 
once again, where Adam failed, Jesus Christ prevails. At every point along the way, Jesus was faced with much of that which was before Adam as perfect humanity. But yet where Adam failed, Jesus Christ does just the opposite. And in perfect obedience and in perfect sinlessness, he prevails in every situation. And this particular incident was yet another step in the process of undoing, reversing all that Adam did through his sinful act of independence. And while the garden that John brings before us would not be the place of final victory, it serves as a clear revelation of God's ultimate plan for victory over sin and that that plan would once and for all be accomplished. So at the very onset of this hour, we are already given the direction in which this is going. Jesus will prevail. But not only do we see a a return to the garden, but we also see God's sovereign control in the midst of all these circumstances. John turns our attention to the search for Jesus and his encounter with those who were coming to arrest him. After he mentions the garden and the familiarity that Judas has with it, he tells us that Judas has gathered a band of soldiers and officers and chief priests and, and, and they took lanterns and torches and weapons and they sought him out. Now, the mentioning of what the crowd was carrying, these lamps and torches and weapons, is seek to set up the encounter that was about to happen. The items in, in hand would indicate what they expected to find or to encounter when they did find Jesus. As would often be the case when when seeking out a criminal in order to bring him to justice, they would, they would expect to have to search diligently for the one who would likely hide or flee from them. And then when they did catch up, they would likely encounter some resistance or a, a fight. Thus the reason for bringing lanterns and torches and weapons. But John, John then adds an important bit of information in the text for us. He writes that, Jesus, having known all that would happen. I mean, that's a a good starting place. Jesus knowing all that would happen. John inserts that purposefully because Jesus was fully prepared for what was about to happen. He was not caught by surprise. He was not caught off guard. In fact, John reminds us that Jesus is in absolute control of this entire situation. Not only does the crowd not have to search for Jesus and undergo resistance or a fight, but John goes and tells us that Jesus comes forward to meet them as they pursue him. And then Jesus asks the obvious question. Well, whom do you seek? Who who are you looking for? And, And when they identify their target, Jesus' answer further reveals this reality of the sovereign control that he possesses over this situation because Jesus simply replies, I am. Whom are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. Now, this response can be understood in one of two ways. It could be merely a simple identification that he was, in fact, the one that they were looking for. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. That's me. You found him. The crowd's response, however, in return, implies that this response was something more than just a mere simple identification. It's me. For for some reason, at Jesus' reply, John tells us that his aggressors 
fell backward to the ground. Now, there's a lot of debate over what exactly this means. It's, it's, this possibly implies uh, that the simple I am was more than a casual identification, but instead an identification of Christ's deity. Because it was this same exact simple phrase that the God of Israel identified himself with when he sought to reveal himself to his people in the Old Testament. When Moses asked, who shall I say sent me, Lord? God replied, when they ask, you tell them, I am sent you. Now, again, there's much debate over why this mob fell backward at, the, at this Jesus speaking of these words But in the very least, it further reveals that what Jesus had said all along, he was in control. Just as Jesus stated in John 10, verses 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You see, Jesus reveals in this this circumstance that He could have put an end to their plans right there at any moment. He had that control. He had that power. And no matter how unjust what was about to happen was, it was only happening because Jesus, the sovereign Lord of all, had purposed it to be so. Which then leads us to the third issue, the significance of the cup. Because in the midst of all that was happening, when Jesus reveals himself to them, and they begin to, I guess, be aggressed or move towards him, we find that in response to the mob's wishes, Peter seeks to protect Jesus by retaliating with force, which would be exactly what was expected. And and in the midst of that, while deterring uh, Peter or rebuking Peter for his course of action, Jesus asks this question. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now the cup that Jesus is speaking of, that he was to drink, it is the very same cup that in the other Gospels, it tells us that he prayed in this garden, that if it be possible to let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. The big question is, well, what's the cup? What does that cup represent? What is so such a big deal about this cup that Jesus says, please let this cup pass from me? Now, throughout the Old Testament and, and the Gospels and even in places in the, beyond the Gospels in the New Testament, the cup is used in various representative ways. But most likely, the meaning here is, is probably the same as the meaning of the cup that is mentioned, uh, particularly in Isaiah 51. In Jeremiah 25, among many other places, we'll focus there for just a moment. In Isaiah 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you have, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. And then in Jeremiah 25, 15, Jeremiah writes something very similar when he says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make it, And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now, this cup uh, doesn't just rest in the Old Testament. We find it uh, experienced or or spoken of even in the New Testament. In Revelation, particularly Revelation 14 and 16. In Revelation 14, John writes there. He also 
will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And then in chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 19, he writes, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, all sin, all sin, no matter how small or great, is due the wrath of God. The Bible teaches us that. Sin deserves God's wrath. In fact, it is required for a righteous and holy God to to deal with that which is unrighteous and unholy, what we call sin. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, beginning of verse 18, that, that the wrath of God is being poured out against all unrighteousness. In order for... For the sin of mankind to be justly dealt with, the penalty of God's full wrath must be absorbed. Something had to be done about it. Uh, Romans 3, beginning of verse 26, teaches us the issue of, about God remaining just and justifying sinners who deserve to be condemned. And so this issue of God's wrath being poured out against sin must be dealt with. It was for this purpose that Christ went to the cross. It was there that that he absorbed the wrath of God due sin, due our sin on our behalf. And thus making salvation a possibility. It was this cup that had to be emptied in full in order for salvation to be declared to the world. We are reminded, in addition to this, of This great reality every time we partake of the cup in communion. You see, this cup is the new covenant in Christ's blood, as Ryan reminded us. It reminds us of what we deserve, but yet are freed from because Christ drank this cup for us. The cup becomes for us a a reminder of our sin. When we partake even here, this is a reflection of our sinfulness and and, and our great need of a Savior. And it also, in addition to that, becomes an identification with Christ as we too suffer in this life. Only not suffering that comes as a result of the wrath of God because we're believers, but rather that which comes as a result of the world's wrath in response to our faith. And then John continues by turning our attention to this issue of what is called vicarious sacrifice or substitutionary atonement. Because John turns the attention now to the trials. He then speaks of the fact that they they arrested Jesus and they bound him and they took him to Annas. And then he he tells us not about Annas except for the fact that Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And now he uses that to say something that's important. You see, it was Caiaphas who, back in John 11, John doesn't say it that way, but who earlier had advised the people that it would be better if one man were to die on behalf of all the people. In fact, in in chapter 11, verse 51, after John records Caiaphas saying that, John tells us that Caiaphas' words were prophecy as he fulfilled the role of a high priest, even though he himself didn't fully understand what he was saying. And now this... Inclusion in John's narrative, along with the previous benefit of Christ drinking the cup on our behalf, points us to this thing that we do call vicarious sacrifice or substitutionary atonement. 
Jesus Christ would die as our representative in our place. The wages of sin is death. This truth is taught not just in Romans, but it's taught throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. It, it is the basis of the sacrificial system that God set up for his people. Not, sin brings death. That's, that's the point. Not just sometimes, but always sin brings death. And not only physical death, but spiritual death, which is maybe further or better defined as separation from the favorable presence of God for all eternity. And just as Adam served as the representative of the human race in the fall, causing all who who followed him to be born in sin with a sinful nature, Jesus Christ, as the second Adam, served as the representative of the believing race, causing all to be born again. So just as Caiaphas had stated, clearly Jesus would die in the place of all who would one day believe. That's substitutionary atonement or vicarious sacrifice. And that's what John is bringing out as he reminds us of what Caiaphas said. But then finally, John turns our attentions towards the danger of identification with Christ. You see, John now shifts the attention a little bit for a moment from that of Jesus to that of Peter. In light of all the good that that we can find in the midst of this passage alone that would come uh, from the great injustice being done to Christ, a dilemma still remains. In spite of the realities of of him drinking the cup on our behalf, in spite of the realities of him dying as a a substitution uh, for us, there's a dilemma that arises out of this narrative, out of this text, as we focus back on Peter. Of all people, Peter, the one who is portrayed as the leader of Christ's followers, he folds in the face of the danger of being identified with Christ. You see, John, John only at this point introduces Peter's denial. He doesn't deal with it here. He's going to turn our attention away for a moment and then come back to, to it. But he in, introduces it here for a reason. Our Our attention is to be drawn to Peter's words in comparison to Christ's. You see, John informed us, as we spoke before, that Jesus identified himself to his accusers with the simple phrase, I am. And as I hope we understand, that that, that phrase is likely packed with a great deal of power and meaning. And in like manner, when asked if he was identified with Jesus, Peter replies, I am not. It's the same phrase, only with one little phrase added to it. And while nowhere near the the, the gravity of the statement that Jesus made and its powerful uh, meaning, it still carries a great deal of significance. It raises the question for all who would read of this episode. Will we be willing to identify ourselves with Christ? What what about when identifying with Christ would mean personal danger and even possible physical harm? And this question brings us back to the very beginning of this message. It reveals a very serious problem with this the seeker sense of methodology. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is not only offensive to some, it is dangerous to all who embrace it. That is why Jesus said that we are to count the cost, right? Numerous times, count the cost, then take up your cross and follow me. The gospel of Jesus Christ, without fail, is costly. The Bible says that all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And it also tells us that it is through much tribulation that we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. You see, there's no room in the gospel for us to remove the offensiveness for the sake of someone. Or to remove the cost of discipleship in order to make it seem a little more attractive. Or more palatable to our culture and society. We must recognize the gospel of Jesus Christ for what it is. And we must embrace it with all its wonderful joy as well as its trials. And whether or not we embrace the whole message or whether whether we embrace the whole message or not, it reveals who or maybe better yet what it is that we are really seeking. Some people even within the church or especially in the church are are only there to reap the benefits there's, there's some good stuff that comes with being a part of the church. There, there's good social fellowship. Uh, maybe for some, it's, it's even the moral goodness of, of the church and those who hold such ideals. But they do not embrace the gospel in its entirety. And is these kinds of people who are not, when it comes down to it, seeking Christ at all. They are only seeking self-fulfillment at Christ's expense. So, to make it personal for each of us, what, what about you? Uh, whom do you seek? Is it Christ? Is it really Christ and, and His glory? Is that who you are passionately pursuing? Or is it really, when it comes down to it, yourself and your personal satisfaction that you might feel good or at least feel justified. You see, Jesus Christ, our Savior, He has, in fact, reversed the effects of sin in this world. That took place in His great sacrifice. And though they have yet to be fully realized, the day is coming when all things will be made right. All of sin's effects will be undone. And just as Jesus was in the midst of this scenario, this circumstance, in the midst of great injustice, just as he was here, he is as much sovereign over all things this very day. And it is for this reason that we seek to faithfully proclaim the the glorious message of the gospel and, and trust Christ to do what only he can do. We tell this story. We, we declare in all of its, its glory and all of its, its agony, with all its joys and all its difficulties, we declare it faithfully and we trust Jesus to do what only He can do. It was God's plan from before time even began to send Jesus to, to drink the cup of God's wrath to the full and pay the wages of sin on the behalf of sinners like you and me. And for those of you who may be here this morning, 
and who have yet to embrace the great truth. And that means you've, you've never recognized your sinfulness and you've never repented of your sin and believe this wonderful message of the gospel, then the Bible's admonition to you is simple. Today is the day of salvation. For those of us who have professed our faith in Christ, the question you need to consider there is, have you fully considered the cost of living for Him? Or is this just kind of a bandwagon that you're riding on? Have you really considered the cost of of truly living for Christ. Now it's easy in our culture. It's easy to identify yourself loosely with Christ on Sundays. And really never have to go beyond that. That's not very costly. But I would argue that identity is somewhat deceptive. The question is are you identifying yourself with Christ at all times? Not just now. Not just amongst this kind of crowd, but everywhere at all times, regardless of what it may cost you. I mean, Jesus Christ gave everything for us. So really, the easy question is, how will you respond? Father, we love you and we thank you for the opportunity to gather like this to consider your word. While we recognize that there's so much more, even in these few verses, I pray that you would take what we have raised this morning and you would drive it into our hearts. You would cause us to respond, not complacently and not rebelliously, but rather in submission to the truth of your word. We celebrate this morning that you have come and you have given yourself in our place and and you fully drank the cup of God's wrath that, that we deserve so that we would not have to undergo that. We celebrate that this morning. We thank you. And I pray, Lord, that by some way, by some means, by the very means that you have declared would be the means to draw sinners to yourself, I pray this morning that that may even be the case, that if there are those here who have never repented and believed the gospel, that you would draw them and that they would they would hear ringing in their hearts that, that call and that, that exhortation that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, if there are those who have identified themselves loosely with the church, with Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would reveal the insufficiency of that life. And Father, as is always the truth, this is a work that only you can do. As you convict us as as lost sinners, as you convict us as sinners who are, who are saved and striving to become more like you, I pray that you would do that great work in our, heart, work in our hearts now and, and that it wouldn't end in these few moments that we give it here at the end of service, but it would continue and it would flourish and it would pour over and it would become evident in our lives that you might be glorified and that your name might be proclaimed throughout this community and to the ends of the earth. So, Father, have your way in our hearts even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.